Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Film School podcast. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Michael Stein. He's an entrepreneur, actor, writer, director, producer, stand-up comedian, and personal development expert. He's also the founder and CEO of Abadak Incorporated, a company that he started with zero dollars and has since made a hundred plus million. He started his entrepreneurial career when he was 19 years old, becoming the number one young nightclub promoter in Los Angeles. He's acted and worked with multiple Academy Award winning actors, filmmakers, directors like Paul Thomas Anderson, producers, and Fortune 500 leaders, and he's the host of the Longshot Leaders podcast. We have a great conversation about how the industry is changing, what it was like getting to know Paul Thomas Anderson before Boogie Nights, and why he's so focused on business, even though he has a desire to create content. I really hope you enjoy this episode and be sure to join the Film Schooled official discussion group on Facebook to take the conversation beyond the episode. But for now, let's get into my conversation with Michael Stein. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Film Schooled podcast. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, before we get into your specific story in the film industry, because I know there's a lot that comes before this, I want to know about your first experience with film in general. Do you remember the first movie that you watched that had a really strong impact on you? <laughs> wow, that's, a, that's funny, because there, behind me, you see there's a picture of Soylent Green, which came mm. out in 1973, and I saw that. Well, that was the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater, and that's why it's on the poster behind you, because... Uh, that was really influential. My mom made a mistake. She, she thought it was, I said, why did you, for those that don't know, it's soil and green is where people are made into cookies in the future and you have to survive off of them. And the, the, the cookies are called soil and green with Charlton Heston. And I said, why mom, why'd you ever, you know, as I got older, why'd you send me to see that movie? She goes, well, I don't know. I thought it was a movie about ecology. So, you know, she just made a mistake, you know? So I grew up neurotic about nuclear war, the end of the world and all that. Yeah. So, that was my first experience. My first acting exercise was when I was 15 at Birmingham High School in the San Fernando Valley was to come up with a conflict. And my conflict was I was a husband. We had kids. We had to take an earlier flight than the kids to go to Australia because we had to, because there was a nuclear war. Um, I got inside information from the government and we had a day ahead of information. And my wife was arguing, saying, no, I want to wait for the kids. And that was just like my you know, you ever want to see 15 year olds that were like drop jawed, you know? So that was my first movie experience and the influence that it made on me. Yeah. Gr growing up watching any Charlton Heston movie is going to make you a little bit paranoid. Planet of the Apes, Omega Man, you know, you're going to, they're eating people, you know, is it's not a good, uh, not a good frame of mind to be in. Right. Um, yeah. When you first watched that movie, it had a big impact on you, obviously creatively um, was, did it spark anything where you thought, oh, I'd love to make something like this? Or does that something that came a little bit later? That came a little later. Uh, the first movie I really, you know, wanted to make me, there was two movies that I want. I said, I want to be an actor. That's what I want to do. Uh, and I wanted to be like a comedian before I even want to be an actor. When I was like six years old, I knew I wanted to be a comedian because that's the only success I had at that time. Cause I, 
I grew up with all the kind of health issues and, and ADHD and dyslexia and all kinds of stuff. So when I saw two movies uh, that came around the same time, which was Smoking the Bandit, I wanted to be Jackie Gleason, and then movie Rocky, which I saw somebody that was exactly like me that was kind of like I, I considered he was a failure, but he kept on trying hard and he was funny and uh, he wasn't considered smart, you know, by people, but he kept on trying. And I, yeah, and that's what helped me got into physical fitness eventually, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, was my second bit of success when I was 16. And then um, I didn't get in, I didn't follow that career, but uh, you know, be, you know, those were two influential movies, one for comedy reasons and one for, you know, teaching you how to achieve things. And, uh, and I, I said, I want to do what those guys do. I know I understood at that point that they are actors and I wanted to be an actor because of that. Yeah. What, what were your parents? I mean, like during this time, because, you know, you always hear the story one of two ways, super supportive parents. And, you know, they saw these interests and they pushed for me to pursue them. Or, you know, the parents that want you to be a doctor and they said, don't even think about making this your career choice. Um, did you have support? Did you have any sense that this was a real, like realistic career trajectory at all? So my dad was an entrepreneur and he had a fledgering uh, tool business in the late 60s. And then he started to sell calculators on a, a emailing uh, or not email, a mail campaign. And back then that was emailing. So, uh, and he made millions of dollars within like 18 months, like $3 million. And uh, he was notorious in the seventies for having orgy parties, a crazy lifestyle. He was still married to my mom. And uh, eventually, you know, we'll get into my friendship with Paul Thomas Anderson. He would be, you know, love my dad. And, and then that's, he would kind of, his caricature was loosely based on the Burt Reynolds character, Jack Horner and Boogie Nights, because he was just a crazy mofo. And he like, you know, was sex, drugs and disco and, so I grew up watching that whole lifestyle to me, entrepreneurs. And, you know, I knew we talked about entrepreneurship in the seventies and my dad was, he sold all these calculators. They called him the calculator kid. So, you know, the influence on my dad looked like Elvis. He talked like De Niro. He was a very dynamic human being. So everything I know about business and um, that type of, you know, character um, was very influential on me. My mom on the other side, she looked like Marilyn Monroe uh, but had a personality of Don Rickles. Both of these people, you could see my dad's up there. He looks like Elvis. You could see my mom is right next to him. She looks like Marilyn Monroe. And then you could see Don Rickles over there who look, who's, you know, it all makes sense because those were big influences for me. They were very flamboyant, very um, colorful people. Um, and I was a kid with a stutter trying to catch up to them. You know, they're both from New York, fast talkers, and I would fludge over my words. So I grew up with a lot of drama, a lot of dysfunctionality, big family. I was the youngest. I ended up being the entertainer of the family. So they were a huge influence on the core of being an entertainer, of stand-up comedy, acting, uh, telling a story. All that was a big influence. Uh, so the uh, negatives turned out to be positives in many ways. Yeah. I, as a younger child myself, I know that there's definitely that entertainer personality is pretty common with the youngest kid in the family. Right. You want to stand out when you're the youngest person in the group. Um, aside from just experiencing and like finding joy and making people laugh, you know, as a younger kid, were you seeing any comedians or any people probably not at six, but I'm guessing as you were grown up, were there any comedians that you were like, Oh, that's what, that's what I like to aspire to be. Yeah. The first time I think I was 10 years old, I knew I wanted to be like, you know, I, 
around the same time, two things happened. Again, you know, one of the, uh, uh, on happy days, Robin Williams uh, entered as Mork from Ork, and that was like, wow, I'm going to be this guy. And around the same time, I saw a comedy special on the Z channel, <laughs> uh, which is an old, you know, channel back in the day for cable, uh, with Richard Pryor, uh, his Long Beach concert, which is a famous concert. And I said, he was talking about sex and everything, things that I grew up with. I grew up around sex, drugs, and disco at a young age. And uh, so did he, you know, with his, you know, growing up in like a, a whorehouse, you know. And I, I was like, I, under, I, I, I identify with both those guys. One guy was out of control, said more just crazy things off, you know, like didn't have a sensory, which like, you know, was me. With, that I identified with Rob Williams like that. And then, and then the, the sexual, you know, family was dysfunctional and saying more inappropriate things and appropriate things like uh, Richard Pryor made sense to me. So those are the two things that really clicked for me at the same time. And um, that was really why I said, I want to be a comedian because of those two things. Right. Right. So going into adulthood, I mean, I know you spent a lot of time working as a nightclub promoter, you know, was this the first step into career path? Was that step one or was it trying any of these other paths first and then coming back to this point? Yeah. Step one was uh, the day I wanted to be the calculator kid. So, uh, you know, I, I want, you know, the day I graduated high school, I already got a business license. I was going to sell tools like my dad did in yeah. the sixties before the calculator business, because his partner started a company in 1975 that this guy, Alan Smith, and that company turned out to be Harbor Freight, multi-billion dollar company. So I said, I want to do what that guy did. <laughs> right. So um, I started to a company and within two weeks, it just failed. You know, I was working out of my parents' house. It was summer. I was 18. I was like, I can't, I have ADHD. I didn't know I did. I found that out when I was an adult. And I was just hyper. And I was like, I can't stay in this room. I made two sales in one hour. And then I never made any sales two weeks later. So then I just went to like city college, studied business, psychology, and theater. And within six months, I said, I got to start doing stand up. So I was 19 at that point. I did stand up, did a good set, packed the house. And I said, you know, I'm not going to make money doing stand-up. I said, but I can make money doing nightclubs because in the late 80s, that was big. So I, right after that, I started promoting nightclubs. And my nightclub, this club called Off the Wall, became the number one nightclub in its age bracket in Los Angeles. I became the number one nightclub promoter. Mm. And from there, I, you know, I, my girlfriend at the time, uh, right after that, um, her dad, I fell into this. I had no idea. It was Peter Goober, who uh, produced... Uh, Rain Man, Batman. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, you know, I, this is right as Rain Man was coming out yeah. and I stepped into this world of the most powerful man in Hollywood. And from there, because I was a, a good nightclub promoter, um, I, and I orchestrated this uh, movie uh, party of uh, 4,000 people for the Batman movie, mm. uh, a nightclub, probably the biggest nightclub promotion, you know, movie promotion ever. And um, from there, I just met more people and my, I met a, uh, a friend of mine, my girlfriend, and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's girlfriend were sisters. Hmm. So uh, I drove him home one night, and because he didn't have a car, and I, I, he was rolling. I had him on, you know, on a roll, you know. And then um, two couple days later, he said, "Look, I got an idea to do uh, a, a film about, you know, the rise and fall of a porno star named Dirk Diggler." And uh, he didn't it was written it yet. And I, I said, went down to his house. We talked about it, and and then you know, a couple months later, he wrote a script. And uh, that was my first acting role, playing Dirk Diggler in the Dirk Diggler story, which eventually became Boogie Nights, which I appear in as well. And from there, I was able to do all, I, I, I saw him slowly get success no. uh, in film. And I said, you know, I want to do that too. And I got to, I stopped doing my nightclub business eventually to start 
to do documentaries on nightclubs and documentaries on the rave scene, which I wasn't in the rave scene, but I went around the country for four months and I wrote, directed, uh, produced this documentary on raves and, and then um, trying to segue into real production. So I went as left my nightclub business and became a, a, a production assistant, worked mm-hmm. in film production for five years, nearly five years. And, and from then I did, I uh, tried to follow his path, you know, to do a short yeah. film, like a drama, half hour long. And it did really well. I made the second pass, the live action short category uh, for uh, Academy Awards. It got bought by HBO. It didn't, you know, get any farther than the second pass, the, you know, the live action. But um, I got close to a movie deal because I wrote other scripts. That's what studios do. They say, do you have any other material that, yeah. you know, and, and uh, one of the scripts I had was about doing underground gambling casinos. Uh, these young guys that get you know, approached by these older guys and there's a conflict because the older guys are doing gambling casinos and younger guys are. And that happened to me. I did underground yeah. gambling casinos in Hollywood when I was a club promoter. I organized those. So then they wanted to do that. After two years was development hell, Trimark Pictures. I was no close to deal, you know, and I was so sick of it. And by that, by this time I've gone through, there's a lot more to it, but there's, I've gone through the hills and valleys of Hollywood seeing the darkest points of it, the greatest points of it and no movie deal. I was broke and in debt because the short film made half its money back, not all its mm. money back, you know? And I said, screw it. I'm going to make a, my own movie. And I'm not going to make the gambling one. Cause that's the one you want to make. I'm going to make one that no one will ever let me make. Cause I'm going to have to pay for it. Right. But I was broken in debt. So then I started a business. I said, I got to be an entrepreneur. I'm good at that. No. After all those years, I, I started <laughs> nothing to do. It. it was a tarp business because I said, I want to sell something on the internet. I want to sell something like a, a, pr- a product that Harbor Freight sells, you know? Uh, and I wanted to, you know, donate things to like, you know, the homeless because that was a big, because my dad was a homeless guy and I could donate tarps to the homeless. There was a whole bunch of reasons why. But anyway, six months later, I started this tarp business to make a movie. And within six months, I made a half a million dollars and I, wrote, directed, produced, and acted in a movie called Love Hollywood Style with Faye Dunaway, Andy Dick, and Coolio, and a crazy cast, and many other faces that you've seen. And almost, I almost went broke making that. And by the end of that, I chose to do a business instead of my passions. And I still did stand-up comedy, but I, for, since then, I, I, I nurtured my business and grew it into a hundred, made a, that business has made over a hundred million dollars since. But I always told myself, I'm going to pay to play and I'm never going to have to, I'm never going to depend on auditioning or depend on getting the script greenlit or, you know, it's just not my style. So I just, uh, that's, that was kind of like my, my reader's digest version of my, my Fourier in Hollywood. Right. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. And I definitely want to go back to some of these points, but I, I am curious working with someone like a Paul Thomas Anderson before he's Paul Thomas Anderson, like we know Paul Thomas Anderson today, you know, was it someone, did you see him as more than another Hollywood connection? Cause obviously everybody in, in, you know, that you meet who's working on a project, whether it's business world or whether it's, you know, filmmaking, everybody talks a big game or we're going to do the next big thing, or I have this great idea. Did you sense there was something more to a PTA before, or was it something where it's like, yeah, sure, man, you're going to write a short. I'll be in it. That's great. And then you see it turn into boogie nights and go, Oh, holy shit. Like this guy is going to be huge you know what was kind of your initial read on that it was a hodgepodge so granted you know i'm going out with i'm starting to learn about hollywood i mean i was born and raised in encino so i yeah. i you know and i grew up there and i lived there you know and that you know until i was like 45 you know so i i've been around the whole gamut of like you know everything la and hollywood the whole thing but you know being around peter goober you know and then seeing paul was just a 17 year old kid who didn't who 
crashed his car. Didn't, his dad was a highly paid voiceover. So they were wealthy and his dad didn't get him a car again. So he didn't have anything. He was working at a pet shop uh, in Studio City. Uh, and I was like, everybody wants to do something. I, I, and I was in the nightclub business at this point. And I'd hear people talk all the time, you know? And I said, well, I, I, everybody talks. But then I did see something, you know? And I said, well, this is different, you know? And I, I would go over to his house and he's talking about, we're talking about the Dirk Diggler story. And he's got all this film stuff and he's enamored and immersed in film and his room's a mess, you know? And I was thought, you gotta be successful. You gotta be clean, which, which not necessarily the truth, but I, I see like in front of his bed as they, all the Academy Awards up to that point in 1988 and all this. And I was like, this is what he wakes up to every day. I had a Miami Dolphins like banner on my house, you know, like, and I was like, this is focus. You know, I was like, I wonder if that works. You know, I wonder what that does, you know? So I'd talk, I'd think about these things. So I was always very cerebral, you know? And, um, and then little by little, you know, I saw him struggling, you know, trying to get this done. I was like, well, that didn't work out. And we did things. And, but when he did Dirk Dickler's story, it won an AFI award. And I was like, I didn't think it was going to do that, you know? But I would always tell him, you know, because I would read his scripts, and he and his girlfriend um, that I'm friends with, um, I'd always read his scripts, you know, first. You know, he's like, I just wrote this, and, you know, and, and I would see this progression. And I was like, and I'd, I'd had other friends that were filmmakers, too, that I grew up with. And I always told him, even when he didn't have any, I said, you know, your, I, 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 your style, the way you write, it's different. It feels different than my other friends that are filmmakers. And I just, I like your style the best. And um, so I saw that spark there. And once he started doing, you know, he did uh, after their Douglas story, then he did a short film, half hour drama. And that did well. And that got, then he went to Sundance Lab. He went to NYU for two weeks and dropped out. And I kind of liked that because I, I, I was like, I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, you want, you know, because nobody cares about your resume. <laughs> right. And then, and then he did after his short film, Reicher Pictures got a deal to do uh, his script, Heart Aid, which I always thought was great too. And that was like, kind of like, you know, in that place in Reno and all that. And I thought that was a gambling thing, which right along our lines of interest. And just to see that whole thing, then I was like, oh my God, this shit really works. You know, time plus effort plus creativity plus, you know, a little bit of hard work, a lot of hard work and a little bit of luck, a lot of hard work, a little bit of luck to make sure you're lucky, you know, and when you work hard to get in the right situation. Right. And watching that, you know, happen the way it did, then I was like, wow. And that's why I started to do the same path. I, I needed, you know, follow success and try the same thing. It's a good time for him too. 1993, when that all happened, it well, was the really indie film boom. And you've got the Tarantino's out. You've got, you know, money is being spent on these smaller movies in a way that it just, <laughs> it wasn't the, you know, in the eighties, the you know? And so, um, you know, following that path, seeing, seeing that success. And then obviously, you know, Boogie Nights coming into play, like, were you, was there any part of you that was like, okay, I was in the short. Now I'm going to have this huge role in Boogie Nights. I'm going to be like the star. Wait, who's this Mark Wahlberg guy that's going to take, you know, take my spot. You know, what was there, was there any thought there when that happened or any, any like, Oh, I'm going to, this is my next step here. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. I could ask it a lot. So here's the thing, you know, yes, I did feel like that, but you know, here's a great lesson for anybody that's listening about, you know, film and acting and all that. Initially, my self-worth was low. I'm still the ADHD, you know, dyslexic, stuttering kid when I was young. So when I, even though I was, you know, when I met Paul, I was, 
you know, um, you know, the number one nightclub promoter, you get a little bit of, you know, confidence from that. I'm still yeah. this kid in my brain. So you don't know your self-worth, you know, also I didn't know how, you know, hard. And sometimes I, I was, I was operating off of raw talent, mm -hmm. you know, which I had a lot of, I'll, I'll do so say, but I also, um, you know, wasn't immersing myself, you know, like Dustin Hoffman sitting outside of Joe Papp theater in New York, you know, going for the, going for broke. So, you know, when I, I remember I talked to him about it when we first talked about Dirk Diggler was saying, look, I want to, I want to play the lead for this one day in a film. I didn't think like that. I said, who would you want to play this right now? And I remember, you know, when I first started talking to him about, you know, when he was just thinking about before he even wrote Dirk Diggler's story, he said, Nicholas Cage. I was like, mm. oh, that's interesting. I said, he'll probably be too old by the time, you know, but we talked about that. And by the time, you know, and I was also, you know, humble to where I, I would, I had a problem with asking for things. You know, you grew up in LA and you're not, I was afraid to, I don't want to ask anybody for anything. I wanted to do it all on my own. Kind of still am like that. Mm -hmm. But so I went through all these years of Peter Goober and like, I didn't want anything from his daughter because I loved her. I didn't want to like take anything. And then by the time I got some, you know, I started, you know, getting my self-worth when, when Boogie Nights came out, I don't, can't blame Paul because well, one, you got a, you, you got, you got a 10 or $15 million budget and you're going to spend 10 million on advertising. You need a name. Yeah. And at this yeah. point, Mark Wahlberg, you know, was popular and he already did basketball diaries. And I was like, I get that. Did I want a bigger part? Yes. Right. You know, um, but nobody owes you anything. Right. And, and that's something that I learned, you know, and I, I accept that. And, and I, you know, I'm happy to just be a part of it, seeing the magic happen, you know, and, um, but that's my whole outlook on that. Sure. Sure. Well, moving, moving beyond that and obviously working in following the path, you know, you mentioned like, you know, not pursuing the film school route, wanting to just get into it. So you go from, you know, all this confidence, you're a nightclub promoter, and then I'm a production assistant, you know, we're working in Hollywood. Um, you know, was that a, you know, what was that experience like working on all these different films, working in, you know, really the, at the ground level in the film industry, you know, trying to, trying to navigate, figure this out. What was that climb to then trying to get your own project off the ground? Yeah. So I was, you know, when you're a nightclub pro promoter in the eighties and I was like a mini celebrity, you know, you get that kind of, you know, so everybody's really nice to you. You're the party guy, you know, and you're, you, you run it, you're, you know, as young too. So I was very, very young, successful, a lot of success early age and dropping all that, you know, you lose your financial security as much, you know, cause you know, production is like job to job. You know, I worked in commercials, which was great because you get to get to see the best talent you see the beginning, middle, end of a production. So if you want to learn something, you want to sit with John Schwartzman, who's, you know, the DP on something. And you're, you know, they just did Armageddon. And I was like, I'm sitting with this guy. These are the best, the best. When you're not shooting a film and you're a production guy, you know, a DP or whatever, it's director, you're shooting those commercials because you get paid more per day and the per diem and all that. They want to make money. So I got to be around that talent. So, and I got to see the repetition of beginning, middle, end of a production really well. My first job left my nightclub business. My first job was watching, uh, and he wasn't a film director this time was watching Zack Snyder uh, direct a Vans commercial up at the Mammoth Mountains, uh, you know, in the skiing area and, you know, on snowboarders. And I was like, it I was lugging shit around. It was totally miserable. I was freezing, people barking at you, uh, empty the, the cube truck, you know, empty all that shit out, you know, you're pee on, you know, but it's good humble pie, you know, and that was the best film school ever. 
mm-hmm. to watch and go through those productions. And I had friends that, and I got that job because I was friends with the unit production manager and she got me on so much work. She ended up working on my short film eventually. And I, I got my, my whole crew that I learned from commercial production. I got the creme de la creme for my short film, big production. Even Paul walked on there and he was like, holy shit, I didn't even have to shit my short film. <laughs> right, so, right. So I was like, yeah, you know, it was a great experience. Right, right. Well, after those years of doing this and trying to market this this script around, you know, you've you're trying to get one thing off the ground, trying to get money, and and you know, you you said something when you were giving a the ten thousand foot view of this, you know, where it was like, from now on, it's pay to play. I don't want to have to rely on anybody else. And you mentioned the peaks and valleys of Hollywood, you know when you talk about that, is it just a situation of getting, feeling like you're getting close with a studio exec or feeling like you're getting to the finish line to get something out and then having that pulled away from you? Is that, is that really what you got sick of or what was it in the politics of Hollywood that, that really turned you off? There's a, there's a lot of dynamics. It's a stew of all kinds of things to where it's like, there's it's a broad question over, I'm sure the experience you had doing it. Yeah. Right. No, I'll try to encapsulate uh, so it's it's a uh, it's a it's a stew of pretentiousness, uh, megalomania, megalomania, where you know there's people that are deceived by other importance. There's uh, there's promises that are made that can't be kept, but you can't telegraph that you can't you know know that. There's um, people want to have you know when I did my short film, tons of meetings, met with Joel Silver's office, all kinds of offices, you know Susan Levine, you know sitting in the, uh, there and saying, yeah you know everybody just wants to meet you, they want to read your script. They might not want me to meet you for, you know, you're all these meetings says, then if you pop, then they have a relationship with you. So there's that. Then there's, you know, there's uh, so many things fall through. There's a lot of unethical dynamics that, you know, first of all, there's a lot of great things about that industry too. Of course, you're telling stories of great business. And there are, there are people that are very um, astute and that follow, you know, great rules and, and have morals. Then there's another side to it where, you know, like, holy shit, I mean, can't believe that this business is not more regulated like other industries are. Yeah. And I cannot believe that was how I remember having such the naive when I was like, I told my mom when I was like 13 or 14, I was like, I want to be an, a comedian, an actor, and, you know, an entrepreneur. That's what I want to, you know, she's like, you want to be a, in film, huh? She goes, you know, is, be careful, you know, and I said, because I, 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 I always tell myself, I could just make friends with like, you know, a big producer or, mm-hmm. or a director or something, and I, you know, and I did that. I became friends and I did business with the most powerful man in Hollywood, Peter Goober. And my, one of my best friends became, you know, the, one of the greatest directors of all time. But, you know, my mom had told me one time, she goes, you know, and not to say that those guys, you know, anything about them, but she said, you know, be careful because, you know, Hollywood is known to screw people over. Mm-hmm. So, mom, that happened in the 50s. Yeah, not now not it's sanitized now. and pure now <laughs> yeah you know we've all everybody's got a more of an understanding of the way the human nature works and that i was like so so naive because six human need psychology hasn't changed for thousands of years you know which is a personal development thing i digress but anyways the the um the long story short is that i saw so many things like even like chris peters who was just on my podcast um i do a podcast called long shot leaders uh and uh he was talking about his, his dad, John Peters, who oddly enough is portrayed in Paul's new movie, uh, Liquor's Pizza, the mm-hmm. character John Peters. And, you know, he, Chris doesn't talk to his dad. They have a terrible relationship. And this is the son of Peter Gruber's partner, one of the most powerful men also in Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, producer-wise. So it's just a really wacky 
crazy business. Um, and uh, there's also so many great things about it. But seeing the hills and valleys, when I say that's the, those are the valleys, I've seen the hills too, see some great things happen. You know, so I saw a lot of things and I said, I just, you know, have to get out of this. You know, I moved my family to Austin, Texas, you know, after a certain point. And I said, I'm going to expand my business. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to spend time with my family because uh, I was doing stand up at the comedy store and I was, you know, just got done making the film. And I said, you know, I'm, like, I'm going to just take care of this business. So eventually when the kids grow up, because I don't have rules about age or anything, that's another thing. Hollywood is very age. And I don't care about that shit. And I, you know, my kids are now like 15 and 13. And, and I was like, you know what? Now they're, they're, that's why I started a podcast. And, and that's how my whole outlook on it, you know, I'd be cognitive of those hills and valleys, but then eventually just put yourself in a position where you can, you know, tell stories on your own, on your yeah. own dime, you know, and maybe, you know, make your own coin from it. And, but, you know, I, I, that's just my route. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's with everyone I've talked to, you know, there's that some more than others have had experiences, you know, where like, yeah, it's a beautiful place of opportunity, but also you know, I talked with a director early on the show and uh, you know, he's made 10 or 11 movies and some pretty successful. And, you know, he's like on paper, he's like only one of them's made money. So he's like, I get royalties from one of those movies, you know? And he's like, I know they made a lot more money than that, but somehow in the accounting, it's still, they still haven't made their money back. You know, he's like, so there is that side of the industry that is kind of a blow, you know, when you have something that really works and you know, someone's making money from it, but it's, it's not me. Well, here's a story I didn't tell you. Here's a little blurb. So when I did Love Hollywood Style, wrote, directed, produced, uh, acted in it and directed it and, uh, you know, uh, Vivendi bought it. They were, they were a uh, division of Warner Brothers. And Vivendi went under. Hmm. Uh, they, were, they had financial problems. They were filing BK. But they, they acquired a bunch of properties, a bunch of films that they knew when they were still going BK. So they were going to make money off of those and they weren't going to have to pay, you know, any of the, for, you know, the residual, they're going to have to pay hmm. for that. So that's what happened with Hollywood style. And I could easily sue them and get the rights back to my film, but it's like, I make more money in my business than, than love Hollywood style right. for me to just go back and do all that. So I don't even care. Yeah. That's, that's, it was, that was one of the things why I said, and that happened before I left LA and I was like, I don't need this shit. Right. I mean, right. I, you know, I, you know, you seek, you know, passion opportunity and I, and I could do, you know, that's the one thing I love about stand-up comedy. I can still just grab a microphone and I can just, do a set, you know, and kind of get that out of my system. I could write, I've written eight screenplays, you know, I've written two or three since I've been out here in Austin, you know, I went back to LA and you start selling that and you start going through the shit, you know, like, you're like, oh, I'm not coming out here and do this again, you know? And so probably, uh, you know, who knows, maybe in a year or two, I'll probably just, you know, end up producing it myself, you know? Right. right. So. Well, I, I want to ask about that in one second, but I have to ask, and I know you get asked about this a lot, but, you know, Love Hollywood Style was 2005-ish. Yeah, 2000. yeah, 2006 is when it came out. Okay, and um, working. So, was Andy Dick a connection through the comedy store? Like, how did he come into the play with that? Like, how did you, or was it just someone that auditioned and ended up in it? Uh, no, I. Um, you know, when you do a short, when you do one thing that's really good, um, like my short film Rituals and Resolutions, it was a drama, and it got did really well as a short film. So other people see those things. And they say, well, yeah, I want to work with this guy. So that was my calling card. So I was able to take 
that film and say, I'm doing another film. And it's different than this. It's going to be a wacky comedy. It's going to be a cross between Kentucky Fried Movie and drama like American Beauty. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was different. It may be a little, a tad too different. Um, I still think it was, it was done really well. Um, but people liked it. It was about four crazy stories. It was my, my F you to Hollywood. I was like, you know, it was called, you know, about love and dysfunctionality in Hollywood. And it was about four separate stories about um, one guy, uh, a, a, a Yeti climbs out of the Hollywood, under the Hollywood sign and uh, dethrones the, the porno star in, in Mount Olympus Hills, you know, and becomes a porno star until somebody bigger comes along, you know? Let alone, he's like an, an agriculture, a, 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 an amazing, you know, historical, you know, prehistoric find. You know, we didn't, Hollywood doesn't care about that, you know? So yeah. there was like something crazy and wacky like that. And then there was um, a, a writer, um, and all these stories intertwine. A writer brings home a real doll for Valentine's Day. And, you know, he falls in love with the doll. And then the doll actually, you know, then the wife gets a, a male real doll. And there's a, there's a love triangle. This is before Lars and the Real, real, doll, real doll came out. The real mm. girl, Lars and the real girl. Yeah. And, um, and there's a crazy twist in that. All of them have kind of like a twilight zone twist at the end. Uh, then there's a, a black, white, Jewish, African-American, you know, cultural phenomenon rap star named Montel Meshuggah. And he, 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 he's a cultural phenomenon and, and a symbol for civil rights, but he, he's, and has this great rap career also. And people find out that he's from South central Encino instead of South central LA. And that mm. ruins his whole career which is just silly because people ignore the fact that he's this amazing symbol for civil rights and all that. So yeah, there's a little twist in that. It's about shallowness. And, and then the long, there's another one where Faye Dunaway plays God and, and uh, the uh, head of a studio. If you're going to cast somebody to play God, you know, yeah, Faye Dunaway. why not? She already <laughs> thinks she is. So, um, you know, so uh, one of the um, uh, head studio heads, um, C- CB brothers uh, is become possessed by the devil. And, um, there's a, a no, no, nobody projectionist that needs to uh, over, you know, to, you know, exercise him. And there's a way to do it. And those are the four crazy stories. And people, when they saw my short film and, but they read that and they said, this is, this is genius. This is either go, you know, it depends on how this goes and it's executed. And it just didn't hit enough traction. Also, yeah. we won some awards, you know, um, Vivendi took, you know, took it. They kind of redid the, the cheesy video jacket to it. They, with the replacement music, you know, it was cheesy, you know, cause you know, their choice, they kind of can kind of run with a little bit sure. to get it out there. And, um, that was, uh, that was how I got to get all those people in it. Yeah. And, um, you know, you write it, you write something that's different. That's interesting. Also, I didn't need those actors for long days cause it's for, for intertwining stories. Yeah. That's a big key. And also I wait to the last second. Nice independent film trick is you wait and wait and wait. And you you take, you have your first choice, second, third, third choice, fourth choice. And it's like, okay. And Bancroft's not available. Okay, fine. Let's go for uh, Faye, Faye Dunaway. Cause that was like my game mm-hmm. planet that before Anne Bancroft died and uh, Faye Dunaway. Great. Two time Academy award winner, you know, Butch Cassidy, no problem. Let's, you know, mommy dearest. I'd love to do that. And uh, yeah. it worked out great. She was awesome. Yeah, that, that's super smart advice, you know, thinking in terms of, because I think a lot of times, you know, people, I, I just had Casey Tebow on who, you know, had Bruce Campbell in his film for, you know, and it was a big selling point for the movie. He's not having to do a bunch of that action stuff. He's in for a couple scenes, you know, he doesn't, it didn't have to interfere with the crazy schedule, um, but having those smaller parts or having it segmented in a way where you don't need someone for 
you know, three months, you know, which you don't have on, on, you know, <laughs> on a, on a smaller film, you know, that's really, really wise advice. Um, I, I'm curious. I, I pre I lit the shit out of everything one night. <laughs> I had Peter green um, who he was, you know, had at the time, I think he had some substance thing going on. Mm. You know, we had like early in the morning, it was like a last minute thing. I said, get Peter green over here. His, his manager said that he's available for six hours. I said, I pre-lit everything. We just had this, you know, one scene. I said, I'm going to get camera, everything lit, you know, a little wide so I can do setups, you know, on, on the fly. So I do, you know, you go for your wide and then you go for your, you know, your mediums and their close-ups. And we shot him. Uh, he, and he was supposed to play a wacky, kind of whacked out guy anyways. So even in the condition that he was in, it worked out. <laughs> you know, it was actually made him better. Right. And, uh you know, so you wait sometimes the last minute. It's risky, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you got to still shots. Sometimes you got to wait the last moment to, because an actor wants to act. And if they have nothing better to do, and it's like, I have nothing to do to, after tomorrow, and this guy's going to offer me, you know, a day rate, I don't care. Let's just do it. Yeah, right, right. Um, you know, you mentioned moving forward, like you, you talked about, you know, shopping scripts around now trying to get something made and realizing like okay this is such a you know there's so much brain damage from this you know trying to go through and and sell something you know we have this idea of hollywood i think everybody who's interested in film you know they hear the stories of a steven spielberg sneaky on the universal lot or they hear a story of you know sylvester alone selling his script for rocky you know and and you you think about these things and you idolize them you think about them all the time like that's when's my moment like that but now, you know, with streaming services, with the way influencers work now, with the way you can build an audience by yourself, you know, with a podcast or, or you know, doing, producing your own comedy, doing a, a show, all that sort of thing. Do you think the future moving forward is going to look more and more like someone in Austin who has a business is going to self-produce something in Austin, send it to Netflix directly without ever going to LA. Do you think that's the future? Or do you think there's still a reason to be pursuing the quote unquote Hollywood style of, you know, filmmaking? It's a great question because I think that there's going to be so many more avenues and routes. It's kind of like the, it's not going to be like movies. Like I would get together with friends and be like, I could tell you like who played for like the Dodgers in 1978, you know, for right, first right. base, that was Steve Garvey. So I could tell you the same thing about films, you know, like up until a certain year, because now there's so much content and so mm-hmm. much parody. So I could name like everything from wings that won Academy Awards, like, you know, 1980, it was a chair of fire, you know, that, you know, so, but nowadays there's so much content, there's so much dilution, but it's actually giving people a chance because People want so much more content and so many more avenues to get it. Mm-hmm. So it is going to become more easier in a sense. Will you be able to make yourself a household name like, you know, like a Tarantino? That's going to be a little more difficult now. You haven't seen that in a while, have you? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, maybe somebody like uh, even the Duffer Brothers, you know, it's not like that iconic, mm-hmm. you know, um, position. So, yes, it's, it is happening. Um, you know, people in Hollywood, you know, the old school, I, when I went back to sell my screenplay, it was frustrating because I've written eight screenplays at this point. And the first, you know, four or five were, you know, I listened to, okay, I'm John Truby's story structure, save the cat story structure. I'm going to do, you know, and really kind of analyze all the story structures and really do my homework. And then I would go, I would share it, you know, you break it down, you know, you get advice. But then after a certain while, like the last two especially my last screenplay, which I really, I studied with a new 
teacher, and I really went back to everything I've always learned. And I know this last screenplay, I knew it was a grand slam. You know, mm-hmm. you, you just write something and you're like, holy shit, I really just took the time, didn't ADHD it, and I really like, you know, kind of massaged and everything hits great. And I'm, and I'm you know, the, the, the dialogue. There's sometimes, you know, just, it's that three point, nothing but net kind of thing. And I remember going back and then certain people that even really good people, but they want to get value and they'll read your script and they'll be like, they'll take a concept, you know, and they'll be like, really an earthquake. And I'm like, yeah, you believe the frogs in Magnolia, don't you? <laughs> you know, you liked it. So, and I thought that was great, you know, but that, yeah, but there's other movies, you know, it's like, really Zed's dead, you know, you, that, you, that scene, you know, you, you liked it, you know, the big ball that's rolling, that's chasing after, you know, Harrison Ford, you like that, don't you? Well, that's the thing, you know, that never would get made with certain people that tell you certain things. No. So these are the obstacles that, you know, and it, it debilitates you because there's the artist hat and then there's the business hat. Mm-hmm. And Warhol said, Andy Warhol said, you know, the greatest art is business and, 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 and you have to be both it's sometimes in modern filmmaking. Right, right. Dance, though, to answer your question. Yeah. Well, you're focused really on the business side right now. You know, right. you've got your podcast, Long Shot Leaders, which is funny coming full circle now, knowing the Rocky influence. Um, there's there's a lot there, the, the long shot idea. Um, and, you know, for, for the business, I think that's something that, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this show, like myself for a long time, are probably going to brush up against to go like business. You know, I want to make art. You know, they're going to throw that out. They're going to be, I want to do this. I want to just get behind the camera. And, you know, I've come to the spot where it's like right now I'm laser focused on business and knowing in the long haul, there'll be an opportunity to, you know, like you said, pay to play, create my thing. Don't have to worry about spending the same amount of time trying to sell it to somebody else who can give me the money. And then I'm out of money again. I need to go do it again. Um, what advice would you give to someone who is you know, really looking to, to focus in on business. They want to get into art eventually. Uh, you know, do you have any practical tips or any advice for how they can focus in and, and really grow? And again, that's a very broad question because everyone's business looks different, but. No, it's a great, it's a great question. And I'll just answer it. One other little thing about that and that there's, there's other people that like, said, so like, I don't want to do business. I just want to do film. It's like, it's great. I'm not telling you not to. And I'm not telling you not to go to LA. You want to go out, make great content. You know, I was born in Cedar Sinai or Cedars of Lebanon hospital on Hollywood Boulevard. It's not there anymore, <laughs> you know, but I, 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 there's nothing wrong with the area, the land. It's that Hollywood quote unquote, part of that culture, you know, but come there and make great content, but realize there's two routes, you know, you you might have to be prepared to burn the boats or at least burn most of them and save a raft and then try to make that film and then starve a little bit and, and, and be okay with that route. But if you like say, look, part of my plan is also to have, eventually I want to have a wife and kids or your husband or you know, and all that realize these are crossroads of decisions, very important decisions. So stand back and get some big scope on the situation. All right, now let's go into, no, I want to do business. Then I want to dial back. How do I start a business? How do I do that? You know, well, first of all, you have to be very Zen-like about your whole process. You know, a lot of people think either or with me, because I, I was very unconventional because my, my psychological background and all that, it was, you know, just do whatever I can do do the best I can, you know, and there was no, and, and don't have a lot of rules. So like I was, when I was, per, you know, doing my production to talk about the, getting the weeds on it and talk about the nuts and bolts. When I was a production assistant, 
I'm, I was still doing like once a year, like a, you know, a couple of parties here and there because I, I can know I can get some scrape up some cash on nightclub promotion. I was doing whenever uh, production came along, I would do that, make money that way. At the same time, I'm building a website, knowing I'm going to start a business to pay for a film one day. That was my film business, was my tarp business, and I decided I'm going to like. So I would do a, like a 16 hour day on production and then I would do, I would work on a website, you know, which totally different business, you know, and then wake up early and, you know, like a four o'clock, you know, and pick up a cube truck at Galpin Ford to go work on, on a production, you know? And, um, so you, you would go through, that's what it's going to take to be specific. You know, how do you start a business? You need to think about, well, you know, what stand back and what do you see yourself? Cause when you start a business, it might just very well work. It should. And you need to be prepared for it to last for a long time or have, you know, build something to sell. And, and then also think about, you know, opportunity, you know, whatever, whatever business you're going to do, where's the opportunity lie, you know, what are your bullet points? Opportunity? What's the competition look like? And uh, make sure that you, don't have heavy competition, make sure that your margins are big, you know, not small in the competition world, whatever that service is going to be or product or widget. And um, then continue to write, you know, you have to also balance, you have to do, you have to spin plates here, you know, so, you know, you can't continue. And I would watch minimum when I was in film mode, minimum a movie a day. And when I did those documentaries, uh, you know, and I went all in to do those documentaries on nightclubs and raves and all that, I was watching sometimes three movies a day. I would watch them, maybe concentrate on one or two, and then I would play a third one as I was working on the computer. Like, let's say I just wanted to watch Grand Hotel and just kind of in my subconscious record lessons. You just got to be, you know, and, and even like, you know, when I was young, when I just graduated high school, my, my high school tutor, tutor told me, you really, I told her I want to be an actor, filmmaker, and, and uh, an entrepreneur, uh, a stand-up comedian. And she's like, why don't you work with your hands? Because not everybody's meant to do what they want to do. So, you know, because I, I would listen to vocabulary tapes because I didn't have the vocabulary. I would listen to it when I would wake up in the morning and when I go to sleep at night. So I, my, my, I would become a wordsmith eventually because I knew I wanted to write. You have to find everything you could possibly do and do it at the same time. So to answer a really long about way, you want to it's not easy. You want to do something that's really hard and you're going to have to, you know, really work really hard and find net time, which is do try to find out ways to do two things at once, three things at once. You know, you've got to mow a lawn. You better listen to content while you're mowing the lawn to do some net time. And there's a bunch of modalities that you're going to have to try to just try to achieve that. But that's how I would answer on how to achieve, you know, monetary um, success and then still stick with your art. That's what I did. You talked about like spinning plates, you know, before we go into the rapid round, I, I've, I've been curious about this route as I, as I think about your story, you know, you mentioned in the very beginning of the episode, you know, um, ADHD, you know, you're being this ADHD kid, but it sounds like that's kind of been a superpower for you in business, in your career. Do you view it in that way? Do you feel like you have in a, what were described to you as issues or what were kind of talked about as issues when you were younger, where you struggled to fit in? it seems like that's been kind of the part of your success story has been being able to focus on all these different things. Do you think that's true? Like, do you feel, you know, do you feel like that's enabled you to do more than say the average person who would have tried the path that you've, you've taken? Yeah, I do. There's the, they say that a lot, you know, about, first of all, I didn't know I had ADHD until like six years ago, seven right. years ago. And um, I, 
I've, you know, it was a hindrance, of course, you know, I didn't, I never took medication. We didn't know what was wrong with me. I was put in UCLA for an old school, which is a special school for special needs kids in the seventies. And, um, but what those things, you know, did help, you know, but then again, I know it's not an exact science, ADHD, you know, so you, you, you tell yourself stories and if you're going to believe bullshit, you know, when you're younger, you believe shit that hinders you sometimes a lot of times. Right. Well, you could do the easily do, you know, becoming heavily involved in personal development in my early twenties, you know, knowing what I know now, you could easily, you know, talk yourself into the story of success. Mm. It's just, you know, it's just, we can, I don't want to get in the weeds on that, but you know, there's a, there's a modality and there's a, there's a recipe on how to do that. So yeah, I, I tell myself, look, you know, Einstein had ADHD, Michael Jordan had ADHD, um, many other people. Um, and I say to people, I joke around, I said, don't worry, you don't have to have ADHD to be, to be successful, you know? So like, yeah, I mean, I think it did help. I think it hurt. There were so many mistakes mm-hmm. made, but once I found out that people say, well, this is what you're predisposed to do because you have this quote unquote condition. Right. I said, okay, now that I'm cognitive of that, I can at least concentrate on it and then maybe counteract certain things. Yeah. And that helped, you know, and then I take the good and I'm cognizant of, of what maybe would hinder me. And that's how I work with that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, look, I know we're running out of time. I want to go into our rapid run and I, I joke with everyone. They never end up being rapid rounds because some of these questions end up getting people caught up. So I'm curious to, curious to see your answers to some of these. First of all, um, who do you think is the most underrated filmmaker working right now? Oh man. Uh, there's a guy who I want to work with. And I actually want him to remember that great screenplay. I said, I, I, you know, I haven't told anybody this and who, why not tell it on a film screen? You know, yeah. <laughs> maybe he'll hear about it. I actually reached out to him to get on the podcast, but he didn't get back to me. And he's not like super popular. People don't know who he is, but I just love him. I think he'd be great to actually play also the actor because he's not originally an actor. And I'll tell you who it is. Jim Cummings who did Thunder Road. Uh, it's a, it's an independent film. It got, it was about three years ago. It came out. I don't know. 2018, 2019, and it went to Cannes, and it, he's just, a, to me, he's this raw talent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, still think he's making films right now for like a couple, maybe 100 or 200 grand, but he's, I love the guy. I think he's great. Yeah. I think he's, he's so underrated. It's, I, he's a stock that I would love, I, you know, I, I think I'm going to reach out to him today and said I mentioned him on a podcast before anybody races down to do it, because I just love Jim Cummings. I love Thunder Road and I think he's totally underrated and that's who I like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll have to pull this clip and put it out as soon as possible. Get you guys connected. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, he's, he's super active. I just, he just came on my radar literally maybe a month or so ago. And he's so active on Twitter in the community, like supporting other filmmakers. Like he just, he's one of the people I've thought about reaching out to him for the show as well. Hopefully I get him maybe before you do and you don't take up his, uh, maybe you can put a good word for, I love Jim Cummings people. I'm putting it out there. I think Jim Cummings, I think, first of all, I wrote a screenplay and halfway I was writing through my screenplay. Thunder road came out. I got a little girl in mind and I was like, I, cause I directing is a bitch. And I was like, I just want to, I just want to take my screenplay. I wrote, I have a small part in it for me, of course. And then, but I'm like, he would be perfect to direct it and he'd be perfect to play the lead. So if Jim Cummings, you can get this to him. I I love you. I think you're great. I think you're super underrated. I think, 
I cannot believe you're not like a trained actor because what you did in Thunder Road is freaking amazing. You got he's spinning all over the place. He's crying. He's like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. It's visceral. And um, I can't say enough good things about him. Super underrated. He's the first and above all comes to mind. Perfect. Cool, cool. And Jim Cummings would be a great name for a character in Boogie Nights. Um, but <laughs> that <is> touche, <laughs> sorry, yes. sorry. Uh, that's all that was running through my mind in the last, yeah, uh, last get, two minutes. Can, hold that one there. Um, what do you think is the best decade of film history? Well, of course, you're, I'm going to say the 70s. But then again, you know, man, you know, I, I, I used to think the worst was the 80s, mm-hmm. you know, because I grew up in the 80s. That was, my, that was great for music. But that, then look at Raging Bull, 1980. You know, oh. um, one of my favorites. Maybe Scorsese's um, best movie. In right, my right. Oh, yeah. You talk about one of the, you know, it won, it didn't win the Academy Award. Ordinary people won over it, but it won movie at the end of the 80s. It won movie of the, of the, of the, of the decade. And mm. you want to talk about shot composition, uh, music to set and sound, the picture and, and acting and directing and lighting and editing. And man, we're talking one of the greatest executed, it was the 16 millimeter montage stuff that he did in his apartment. New York. I mean, it's so good. It, it, it's just, it's amazing. It's, it's Jordan's flu game, three point, nothing but net. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but I would say the seventies mm-hmm. and I do love the nineties. I'm a, I love Quentin Tarantino and, and uh, I do love Paul stuff. And, and um, there's just, uh, it's a, it's a hard question, but I'd say the seventies because I'm, I'm a seventies kid. I was a kid in the seventies and there's so many influential movies that I went through. So the seventies. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the '90s and '70s were both such similar times in this, in the way, like when you're watching movies from the '90s or the '70s, it's you can see people like breaking rules set by the very produced periods that came right before. You know, like the the early '80s still carry some of that '70s vibe, which I think you get the Raging Bulls, you get some films like that. But then you had at the end of the '80s, you've got these hyper, you know hyper-produced, which is, I like those movies too. You get the blockbusters and the, the ETs of, you know, and all those sorts of movies, but then the nineties, again, you get back to, you know, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. And it's, it's a really exciting period. Those are exciting periods for me is when you see someone kind of shake off what's been the, the box office successes of the year before the decade before and come into it. I even argue like the early two thousands had some of that too, with the comedy world, I think it's a very underrated period of a film, you know, or even horror. You've got James Wan coming in with Saw shaking up the 90s teen slasher. Like those periods, the beginning of new decades are really, really exciting. So it's it's very hard to pick. <laughs> yeah. And on a different note from, you know, uh, uh, style or milieu of uh, society and how things, you know, in fashion and film and, and art, you know, and you could define 40s, 50s, 70s, 60s, the 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, when you get to the 2000s, it's almost like those lines are blurred be- between 2000 and now. Mm-hmm. It's not like the 2010s or the 20s. You know, um, to me, uh, the internet and uh, things are moving so fast and styles, the, higher, the consciousness of filmmaking and how it's, you know, uh, transmogrified into something totally different. It's almost like the lines are blurred now and uh, there's not a distinct, you know, time or feel. Uh, it's just, uh, there's a lot of great things happening also. Yeah. Yeah. At a very fast pace. Yeah. Um, what is a movie that your fans would be surprised that you enjoy? 
you know, the first, the, as soon as you said that, because uh, I'm also like a you know, stimulus response person, I have to blurt it out. You know, when I was a kid, there's a movie called Under the Rainbow hmm. and Rita Moreno, who's topical right now, West Side Story. Um, you know, she was one of the funniest things. I didn't know who she was. Uh, so I think um, it's an underrated film. I, it just made me laugh. But, I, you know, what are, uh, is, was the question, what's an underrated film? Oh, no. Um, like if someone knew your work or the types of movies that you typically oh, talk yeah. about, what would they be surprised you enjoy? You know, there's I'll watch a movie for one scene. I'll watch a movie because somebody did a great job of acting in it. Or I'll watch a movie because the music, the music composition, the way the, the, the music segued into. So you ever like surf around television? So there's not one like I'll watch like Cracking Up with Jerry Lewis because his imitation of the Frenchman, you know, like, you know, as he's in the Papillon-esque jail, you know, or it depends, you know, so, uh, you know, I think they would be surprised that I'll watch a lot of quote unquote films people would say are cheesy or shitty or, and that's another thing. There's a big thing in Hollywood, not to get off on a tangent, but sometimes you need to be aware of the cheese and say, mm -hmm. but would you surprise that that's such a commercial film, Mike, you, you watch that. I'm like, I also don't like, sometimes you could be so fearful of being cheesy that you become cheesy. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, Vincent Gallo, who I met and I love, but Vincent sometimes is so like, you know, he, he did that Brown bunny yeah. and it was so esoteric and so afraid to be, you know, he had wanted to be so avant-garde kind of got a little cheesy, you know? So am I, I don't think any people make, they work, you know, big, you know, a lot of movies, um, they say, they say that they're surprised that you like them. It's like, you know what? That's, that was a hard movie to make. A studio put some money into it. You know, the director was competent. You know, don't be so hard on that person. That, that took a year to make that, that, that work of art. You know, even though, you know, people are like, you know, I love Scorsese. He's one of my favorites. But, you know, some of these superhero movies, hey, look, they're good movies. Yeah. You know? So I, I love the superhero movies. It might surprise people because everything I've written has to do with like more of a, a you know, a psychological, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, very dark, you know, whether it's comedy or drama, no. but I, I watch, I don't care if it's commercial. I don't care if it's, if it's good, it's good. So they would be surprised to know. I, I watch a lot of shit just be sometimes just for one scene. Yeah. Yeah. I learned that about uh Tarantino's very much like that as well. And I've learned that. Um, I say that like, I know Tarantino, uh, I don't know Tarantino, but I know I've, I, whenever he recommends movies on like the pure cinema podcast, a lot of them I'll watch and I'll be like, what the heck? Like, what does he like about this movie? But I started realizing there'll be like one scene um, that I see that's what he loves about this movie. Like I watched um, CC writer when uh, once upon a time in Hollywood was coming out and I was like, what? on earth does he like about this joe namath biker movie and the opening credits are super creative there's a great scene with you know sid Haig shows up he's great in it you know so i started seeing like oh he i see these elements that tarantino obviously would love but the movie as a whole you're like this is so crazy they recommended this as a as a movie to watch but it's it's special when you can look at a movie and try to find that one or two things that are really, that really work. It changes your experience for the better. You know, you right. can, you can enjoy a lot more, a lot more movies. Um, if you were given the green light to remake any film, uh, what would you choose and why? Okay. So um, I just got done doing my short film and I saw a movie. I love Michael Mann. Don't get me wrong, but I'm a huge Muhammad Ali fan. There's a picture right behind him. Ali, you know, take, trying to take uh, Cosell's uh, toupee off and I my banner back there. I, I saw Ali. I think Will Smith did a great job, mm -hmm. but I truly feel 
that I could have written and directed a better Ali. And I know that sounds so egotistical. I'm just, but it's only because I am a, I, I, first of all, I think in biography fashion, my whole life, I think in bio, that's why I do a show, this podcast called long shot leaders. I think about, you know, the beginning of someone's life, the end of someone's life. And how does that hit all the story points of a, of a screenplay structure? I've been doing that since I can remember. And with Ali, I really feel like I could make either a movie on Ali and no one's really done a movie on Mike Tyson yet. I'm a huge boxing fan. And, but to answer, re, to redo Ali, I know I can I just know in my bones because I care so much about the story. Hmm. Hmm. Um, what is the number one piece of advice you would give to an aspiring filmmaker? Ask everybody this. This is the, the question that I'm always curious to hear someone's answer on. What's the absolute best piece of advice? If you could give it to every filmmaker, what would it be and why? Study personal development. Know why you do what you do and why other people do do what they do. Understand human needs psychology because you're going to have to understand one, the character of what you're writing about or who you're, you know, you know, storytelling, even as a producer, you know, if that's all you're going to do. Now, the other thing is, is that you're going to deal with a lot of dynamics on uh, you're going to your your emotions and your decision making is going to be challenged by a very dynamic industry and you're going to be also you're going to have to understand you know why people do what they do i just talked to um we had him on my podcast his name is robert green he wrote the book 48 laws of power and if you're not familiar with the book it he he was a, a production assistant in hollywood and he grew up in LA and he wrote this book about people that, you know, use power throughout history. He was also a historian, you know, throughout school. And it really helps to understand, to become more successful in that industry and in any industry, really. I, just, I think everybody, they should probably teach it in high school, you know, personal development, human needs psychology, because you will not, at least when you, you won't get as angry or, you, or defeatist you know, in your travels of trying to be successful in a super uber competitive industry. So understanding why you do what you do, study psychology and um, learn about, and, and how does that apply to your industry, especially, you know, where you're trying to go and your ultimate goals, you'll be able to, I would just say, take that just as much as uh, as uh, filmmaking or production or anything else. Yeah, that's, that's really, really awesome. Really helpful. And for anybody listening, uh, definitely check out the long shot leaders podcast. Uh, we're coming all the way full circle uh, for, for information on that. Some great interviews, even with a lot of filmmakers and you've had on the show actors um, and business leaders. Um, I know that's super, super helpful. And for anybody that wants to connect with you, obviously there's the podcast, uh, but if someone wants to, you know, follow your journey, is there a good place on social media? If Jim Cummings wants to connect with you on social media, where's the best place to do that? Hey, Jim, or anybody else, if, uh, if you have a good long shot story, you know, we, we want to hear about it. Go to long shot leaders. All my social uh, buttons are on there and uh, it's the easiest way. It's just go to longshotleaders.com. You can go there and check out uh, me. If you've got a long shot story, there's a form there that you can fill out and uh, tell us your story and love to have you on the show. Uh, it doesn't have to be financial success or anything. You know, it could be, you know, we've had a Holocaust survivor. We've had somebody that was like a nomad land. They were like, you know, homeless for 12 years from 12 to 24. And then they ended up becoming, you know, general manager somewhere and they bought, the, just bought their house. You know, it's great stories is what we're looking for. And um, 
you know, if it can tell like a good movie, and that's what I look for. And, and you've overcome large obstacles to find success. We want to hear about you. So yeah, longshotleaders.com. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the Film School podcast and sharing about your journey. I really, really appreciate it. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Film School podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.